Greetings, friends. I'm John Haspel. This is a Dhamma talk from Cross River Meditation Center in Frenchtown, New Jersey. If you find benefit from this talk, please support the restoration, the preservation, and the presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma with your donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace. So today's sutta is uh, on the Jhana Sutta. There's a sutta that's actually called Jhana. When you realize that, it's hard to understand how how many additional so-called meditation methods have been developed in the last 2,600 years and called Buddhist meditation or inferring that it's what the Buddha taught. When the Buddha only taught Jhana meditation, I've never come across any other mention of meditation by Siddhartha other than jhana. Uh, jhana means concentration, and when you understand the whole point of the Buddhist Dhamma, of course we need to deepen concentration. The, a mind that is rooted in ignorance of itself and the world around it itself um, is always prone to distraction and fabricating. So we began this study, this 32 class, I think it's going to end up being 34 classes, I'm going to add one or two. Yeah. Um, this 34-class study of um, uh, the true Vipassana, introspective insight into the three marks of existence, which are mentioned here, the three defilements of greed, aversion, and deluded thinking. A mind that is rooted in ignorance of four noble truths, as the Buddha describes reality as four noble truths, a mind that's rooted in ignorance of that <clears throat> is always prone to fabricating what's occurring to itself in relation to the world. So we learn... <clears throat> In the beginning of our study, the importance of focusing on the Eightfold Path and recognizing that the Eightfold Path is what the Buddha taught and recognize also anything that's not part of the Eightfold Path and abandon it as our Dhamma practice. Then we looked at uh, the Buddha's teachings on what actually constitutes a self and we learned that the Buddha didn't teach that there's no such thing as a self or that the self is empty. Uh, in fact, the Buddha, you could say, from one way of looking at it, the Buddha taught that the self is everything, not that the self is nothing. But to fine-tune that, that statement a little bit, he taught that what we think of ourselves is everything in relation to the world, which contradicts everything that modern Buddhism is about. Uh, and again, I'm not putting down modern Buddhism, just pointing out the difference. And maybe I shouldn't use such a broad term as everything, but I, I can easily say mostly. Um, I studied in most of the major schools, and all of them have their own little nuances and variants, but... To a practice, they all have at their common core the annihilation of self and nothingness or emptiness. And you'll notice how this sutta and other suttas point out directly, the Buddha says, when your mind starts going there, stop and pull it back. Put it back in your body, because that's not reality. And even considering that as a goal or an aspiration is a delusion. It's rooted in the three defilements. It's rooted in greed, aversion, and deluded thinking. So as we move through our study, we got a clear look at fabrications, and we learned how to, how to abandon fabrications one after another. Sariputta taught us just a few weeks ago about how he, he came up against the things that we're going to talk about in this sutta, fabrications, manifestations of ignorance that look like some grand experience, such as establishing myself in the dimension of infinitude or the dimension that the dimension of infinite consciousness or the dimension of neither perception or non-perception. Sounds like nonsense, doesn't it? It, it should sound like nonsense, because it is. There is no dimension of infinitude or infinite consciousness or perception or non-perception that a human being can establish itself in. Period. It can't be done. 
It's simply foolish to try to do that. And that type of establishment is the same as insisting that I need to establish myself as the world's greatest baker or the world's greatest race car driver, the world's greatest meditation teacher, or the world's greatest or worse of anything. That's all I'm making. It's all speculation. It's all prone to distraction and suffering. So these, these non-physical establishments that have somewhat magical and mystical and maybe grand names are just as mundane as thinking, i got to be the best at this because people might notice. It's still, in the, everybody notices that as greed, don't you? One of the defilements. So the three defilements are greed, aversion, and deluded thinking. Greed and aversion are rooted in deluded thinking. They require deluded thinking. And greed and aversion are really the same thing. It's wanting something to be different than it is. So an aspect of greed might be that I want another piece of chocolate cake, but you better not put any broccoli on that. That's aversion. And it, we do it with common things that have nothing to do with us personally, except that we make it so. And when we make anything personal, such as chocolate cake or broccoli, when someone gives us a chocolate piece of chocolate cake, we take it as a reward. It improves the quality of our day. What's the problem with that? When we don't get chocolate cake, we have a lousy day. And the other side is true too. Someone puts a piece of broccoli on our plate. That could be the worst thing that ever happened to me. Remember that uh, Seinfeld when Newman had to eat broccoli? No. One of my favorites. Vile weed. Still remember. And again, that's just an example. Newman lost his mind over a piece of broccoli. Instead of just deciding, well, I don't like broccoli. Which is what we can do. When we have control of our mind, broccoli, chocolate cake, politics, poverty, racism... A lousy Dhamma class, none of it is taken personal because we know who we are and we know that nothing can be taken personal. How do we know that? Where did we learn in this study what we actually are? Anybody want to answer? Because I'm going to call on somebody if somebody doesn't answer. Let me see. Who's going to have the answer? Jen. Oh, I knew you were going to call me. <laughs> and I was like, I can't think of the name of the sutta. But you know that you know the sutta, six like, property yeah, person. Thank you. Datu Vivanga Sutta. We're all, the, we're all gross stuff inside of us. No. I think I know judgment gross, but well, in in, a, in effect, it is gross, yeah. isn't it? And we're supposed to look at it and that we way. I think it's awesome. Jen's pointing out how the Buddha would often describe. One of the things that he he tells us we should recognize and become disenamored with is our physical form, and then he points out directly. You know, guess what? The form that you're so enamored with, that you think is you. Guess what happens when it dies? It rots. The birds and all kinds of animals eat it and it's left in this mass, this heaping mass. That's what you're so enamored with. And along the way, it's full of pus and cesium. And the Buddha, and he gets deep into what actually constitutes this human body. Why are you so enamored with it? And it doesn't mean we should be disenamored with it, but we shouldn't think that this is us. And we shouldn't take anything that this body does personally. Again, that's part of the, the five clinging aggregates, isn't it? Form, feeling, perceptions, mental fabrications, and consciousness. Courtney, I realize that you're hearing some terms that are uh, completely foreign to you, and I hope you continue to come to class, and after a few classes, they will. But um, Just understand that this, this sutta itself is rooted in this jhana meditation that you just did, and then there's a broader understanding that each class is about. So let me get to the sutta. Uh, the jhana sutta, and you'll notice immediately... Um, <coughs> what the Buddha addresses as the reason for 
jhana meditation. And the reason for it is because in our minds, minds rooted in ignorance of Four Noble Truths, we're constantly speculating about who and what we are. Why do we do that? Why does a human being constantly speculate and fabricate itself? Why doesn't it know better? Ram, why doesn't the human being know better? Because we're still deluded. Because it doesn't, yeah. Because it, it, that's the quality of that mind, that human mind, is deluded. And so you could say that if there's any reason for human beings, and you're going to be, I'm going to get some emails on this. If there's any reason for human beings to be on this planet is to recognize that we're human beings. <coughs> and not anything else. And then we can't be anything else. We're not supernatural beings. We're not beings that can be prone to going to heaven if we do a few right things, or some, or Tulsita Buddhist heaven, or Amitabha heaven, or the the uh, or or some type of other religious speculative non-existence. Why would I want to do that? Even if it was possible, even if I knew for sure that if I if I follow the Ten Commandments, I can go to a nice Christian heaven and be taken care of forever by Jesus Christ. Maybe that's true. I'm not saying it's not. But if I believe it, I'm going to waste this life getting to that life. Why would I want to do it? Why would any rational, mature human being want to waste their life for another one? No matter how grand we might think it is, or even know that it is. And it also assumes that this life here is just crap. Sucks. It's an assumption of that, isn't it? Mm -hmm. And that, what is, what is assuming that this life is, I'll use... Rom's words, because it's much more appropriate. Crap is better than suck. <laughs> why is it? Why? Why do we think that way? That's greed. It's simply not good enough. And since it's not good enough, since it doesn't meet my demands, it sucks. And we do that with everything else. Since that chocolate cake didn't have the right icing, it sucks. It's crap. So, John, is the definition of delusion simply the ignorance of the four noble truths? That's it. Thank you. We're done. Let's go. <laughs> but David's right and once we get that we are done and then we live with a common peaceful mind no matter what occurs no matter who throws that thought about guess what if you do this right when you die you're gonna go there isn't that great no I want to know how I live today and I remember thinking about that when I was 10, 11, 12 years old I, I couldn't formulate the thought completely but I was so disappointed in my life why? because I didn't know what the hell I was doing here it wasn't for any other reason. I had great parents, somewhat nice siblings. <laughs> Are you listening? Um, middle class, Berkeley Heights. You know, I had everything a kid could ever want, and I was miserable. But it, I was miserable because I didn't have enough. About three weeks after I sobered up at the age of 26, I happened to come across a TV guide, believe it or not. I was reading TV guide back then. And there was an article by... Um, Oh, I can't think of his name now. He played the father in the Waltons. Eh, it doesn't matter. Anyway, he, he in the article he talked about his alcoholism and and he he said this is why he drank. There's much more nuanced reasons why alcoholics drink, including this alcoholic. But he said the reason why he drank, he said he said just like I just said, his life was great. He said there just wasn't enough of it. That's greed, isn't it? And I can tell you from personal experience, the reason why I tried as hard as I could to drink myself to death, lucky I didn't do it, was because life wasn't enough. And even if I had two bottles of vodka in me, which I did on many days, that wasn't enough. And people do this all the time. They do it with sex. They do it with Facebook and Twitter. 
We do it with TV. We do it with friends. You know, people talk about how many friends they have or they constantly have to be in the network. We do it with everything in the world. Everything that man- is manifest in the world is an opportunity for distraction. And if we attach ourselves to it, we will distract ourselves. On one occasion, the Buddha addressed those gathered. I tell you, friends, at the ending of the defilements of greed, aversion, and deluded thinking depends on fully developing the four levels of jhana and overcoming the desire for establishment in the dimension of the infinitude of space, the dimension of the infinitude of consciousness, the dimension of nothingness, or the dimension of perception nor non-perception. So just the fact that the Buddha is teaching that, using those words, excuse me, means that the spiritual slash religious practices of the Buddhist time were just as magical and mystical as they are today, which makes sense because human beings haven't really evolved. Excuse me. And I make that statement in relation to the idea that human beings as a collective are developing this grand collective consciousness that we're all a part of. Maybe so, but Siddhartha would say, bull. Where's the proof of it? Would I want that? Why would I want that? Why would I give my mind over to a collective and stop thinking on my own? The whole point of the Dhamma is to recognize that I've done that and stop doing it. That I've given up my mind to speculation and magical thinking. As, and that is the cause of all stress and suffering, isn't it? So the Buddha's Dhamma is to recognize that, abandon it, and live in reality. Let me read that line again. Friends, the ending of the defilements depends on the first jhana, which is secluded from sensuality and other unskillful mental qualities. One enters and remains in the first jhana. So there's not a lot to it, even though it's signally important. We have to do it. And what is it that we're doing here? We're simply putting the world aside and we're going to our meditation spot or our room or our cushion where we normally meditate and we're beginning our meditation. That's that We're establishing the first jhana. And of course, everyone can do that. I very, 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 very rarely heard the word jhana. But the few times that I did, it was taught in a way that even the first jhana was something that you had to be the most super accomplished meditator and you would have had to been meditating for endless eons to even get to the first jhana. Who would want to do something like that? And I, and I can still remember sitting in this grand hall with 150 other people that happened to be a Zen practice being taught being explained this in the context of Zen, in a very famous Zen house here on the East Coast. I won't tell you which one it is. Talking about this as, and, and referring to meditation as something that we should do and that we're going to do with, with the instructions of the abbot. But don't basically he was, he was saying, don't expect to wake up because it takes endless eons. And I'm sitting there thinking, why am I even here? Why am I doing this? And because I, I like the people, all wonderful people, and I was particularly to this abbot at the time, I went along with it. What is that called when, I, when people do that because they're friends and they're acquaintances and people they like and maybe they're in enamoration with that particular practice? What is that called when we do that? It's called clinging. And it's clinging to an ideal. And it's rooted in craving. We cling to something, to an ideology or a practice, because we crave for what we think it'll give us. And that craving is rooted in ignorance. The second noble truth. That first jhana is experienced as rapture born of that very seclusion. Rapture is a rather archaic term that's often given to the second coming of Christ. In this, in this reference, it means a joyful engagement with what's occurring. That's the 
That's a true and accurate description of rapture here. This first jhana is accompanied by directed thought and evaluation. What is directed thought and evaluation? It's simply the directed thought that I recognize that I'm caught up in my thinking, I'm distracted by a feeling, or I'm distracted by a thought attached to a feeling known as an emotion, and I direct my thought back to my breathing. That's directed thought. And you'll notice as we deepen our levels of jhana, when we get to the later levels, we no longer have to do it because we've established it. That's all. And evaluation is not some big deal either. It's simply judging what we're doing. And every meditator, as soon as they start meditating, no matter whether it's jhana meditation or anything else, is going to evaluate it. They're going to place a value judgment on it. Meaning they're going to judge the, the method itself, the technique, and they're going to judge whether they're doing it correctly and whether they're gaining a benefit. That's all evaluation. The Buddha teaches us if we're doing the method right, to let go of all of that evaluation and just do the method. Because it's the evaluation that we're thinking again. We're not deepening concentration. Am I doing it right? Is it doing this? Am I going to develop that? Let it go and come back to the sensation of breathing. Why? Because it's just thinking. And it's not relevant to jhana practice. Furthermore, the ending of a defilement depends on the second jhana, which is stilling of directed thought and evaluation. We're taking a breath. In-breath, out-breath. We notice the second. In-breath, out-breath. And that continues for maybe three or four breaths. And then we're caught up in our thinking again. What do we do? We recognize, for one thing, that for three or four breaths, there was no directed thought or evaluation, and now I'm here. Now I'm back in the first jhana. What's important about that? Recognizing that you did develop the second jhana in your meditation. And notice as I'm going through this, that every one of you has developed these, at least the first three levels you'll recognize. And I would say that you've developed the fourth level, except not as in a permanent state yet. The second jhana is experienced as rapture and pleasure, born of concentration, free of directed thought and evaluation. We're noticing that our concentration is increasing. How do we notice it? Because we're able to string two thoughts together, or two breaths together without thinking. We simply do it. Um, some more magical meditation practices call that as, as your meditation is now, or your breath is now breathing you. Well, it does. I've had that experience. I don't call it my meditation is now breathing me because it, that infers that my meditation has some type of consciousness that I'm not aware of. My, I mean, my, constant, my breath. My breath can't breathe for me. I can only breathe for me. It's the same thought that... Uh, I don't want to get into that. It doesn't matter right now. Furthermore... The ending of the defilements depends on the third jhana, which is the fading of rapture. We no longer notice this joyful engagement. We're simply ple presently, pleasantly present with what's occurring. There remain equanimous, which is a balanced way of living in the world, a balanced way of living in our body. They are equanimous, mindful, alert, sensitive to pleasure. Sensitive to pleasure is not the same as seeking sensuality, is it? Sensitive means that I'm aware enough of what's occurring that I'm sensitive to pleasure. I know it when it happens to me. But pleasure rooted in, in Four Noble Truths, not pleasure rooted in chocolate cake or avoiding broccoli. With the fading of rapture, this pleasant abiding permeates the entire mind and body. And I bet you, every one of you, I bet you, I know every one of you has had that experience, even if it's just for a moment, of, of your entire body being permeated with that. Furthermore, the ending of the defilements depends on the fourth jhana, which is the abandoning of, value, of evaluation. 
It simply means we're letting go of what's of of judging what's occurring, and we're simply staying present with what's occurring. And in this case, what we're staying present with is a well concentrated mind. They enter and remain in the fourth jhana, which is pure equanimity and mindful. But it's refined mindfulness. It's mindfulness that is framed by the Eightfold Path. It's not mindfulness that would direct this alcoholic to have another drink, even though they got 20 in them already. But that's mindfulness. It's an unrefined kind of mindfulness, isn't it? But it's still mindfulness. Mindfulness means to recollect it to hold in mind. We do that with anything. The Buddha recognized that too when he said, be mindful of the Eightfold Path as your Dhamma practice. Being pure, neither pleasure nor pain is seen. We're not evaluating anything in relation to me. I'm not, that, that's a description of not taking anything personal. Being pure, neither pleasure nor pain is seen. In what is seen, there is only the seen. In what is heard, there is only the heard. In what is cognized, there is only cognized. But he is That's an awakened mind. It's only what's occurring. They sit permeated in mind and body with pure, pure bright awareness. The fourth jhana. This kills me when I read it now. The fourth jhana is a pleasant abiding. All the time I was taught that this fourth jhana was something magical. You'll know all of your past lives. You'll be able to travel among the stars without your body. The Buddha describes it as a pleasant abiding. And you know what? I want the pleasant abiding rather than the ability to fly around the stars. Because if I'm flying among the stars, I'm not having a human life, which is all I ever wanted. All that that 10-year-old boy wanted, he didn't know how to get it, was to have a life, have a human life. And you know what? That 10-year-old boy discovered how to do it. It took him about 45 years. But because of a human being from 2,600 years ago who took the time to teach, I was able to find it. And I was able to learn it. And again, I, don't, I, I say this not because I think I have a special mind. I have a human mind. I have a human mind that was able to understand what another human being taught 2,600 years ago. And I also happen to know that I have an ordinary human mind. And I also happen to know that every human being I've ever met has an ordinary human mind. And they can awaken. That's what the Buddha discovered too. It's a remarkable thing. I think we have three teachers here, and they're starting to realize that. It's something that, that when you're teaching, you first don't know if you're going to do any good at all. And if you're, if you're like us, you want to do good here. You want to actually teach something that's useful. And as you start teaching and you realize what you're actually teaching, and you start seeing the light go on in other people's eyes, you realize how powerful, what a powerful Dhamma this human being developed 2,600 years ago. And how effective it is, and how, how pure it still is, as long as we put a little effort in keeping it pure, which is what we do here at Cross River Meditation Center. The Buddha continues. This follower of the Noble Eightfold Path, he's making a point to the people in front of him. They've achieved this level of jhana because they're followers of the Eightfold Path, not some other path. They understand that any phenomena connected to five clinging aggregates, meaning form, feeling, perceptions, fabrications or consciousness is impermanent, stressful. It's a disease. It's painful. It's an affliction. This is anything that we cling to as me or mine or, or mine. Me or mine. It's an affliction. And as such, it is anatta, not self. 
The Buddha used the term anatta. It's, it's again one of the most misunderstood words in modern Buddhism to say that it, anatta means not a self. What modern Buddhism takes that interpretation to mean, oh, the Buddha's teaching there's no such thing as a self, and resolves that fabrication in in a belief of emptiness or nothingness, establishing a dimension like that. Of course, the Buddha taught that as nonsense. Um, the affliction of thinking that you're something that you're not is obvious to, to anybody, isn't it? If you believe you're, 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 if you don't know what you are, how are you going to function in the world? Well, that's the problem. We don't know what we are. Except Jen just talked about it. We're a six-property person. We're a six-property person that has the potential to live a human life with calm and peace, no matter what's occurring. That's the greatest goal. And when you think about it, what more could a human being want? Because that's what we think we will get if we get the biggest hut with the most coconuts. That, that will translate into a calm and peaceful mind. Because now I have control. The problem is you don't have any control because there's always a guy down the street with a bigger hut and more coconuts. Or there's always somebody who doesn't want to do the work you did and is just going to take your coconuts. The Buddha talks about that too. That's living in the world. It's not right or wrong. It's living in the world. What the Buddha is saying is grow up. Accept it. Don't hoard your coconuts because somebody's going to get them. Don't attach yourself to your coconuts and you'll be free. You'll be free. Stop the eye making. Stop the greed, aversion, and deluded thinking and you'll be an awake, liberated human being. This follower of the Noble Eightfold Path disregards those, philo- those phenomena and inclines their minds to the cessation of ignorance. The Buddha is talking about inclining your mind away from worldly phenomena, but also inclining your mind away from speculation, from the belief that you might be going somewhere other than here. Nothing remains to provoke the birth of suffering, which is also nothing is left to provoke the birth of another moment rooted in ignorance, which is the Buddha's teaching on rebirth. Excuse me. The Buddha never taught that another physical birth was of any value at all. He never taught rebirth in a physical sense. He taught birth or rebirth in the sense of what are we giving birth to in this moment? And that's the only, only birthing that we should be concerned about as Dhamma practitioners. Again, this is what we're having. What do I care what I might be giving birth to in a future life? I mean, for one thing, I can't. I can only give rise to what's occurring in my life right now, and I can only be mindful of what's occurring right now. There's no mindfulness about what I'm speculating about the new Ferrari I'm picking up tomorrow at 9 o'clock. I'm not. <laughs> but if I was, I wouldn't. I wouldn't be in my body right now, would I? I might be here teaching a pretty good class. You might be thinking he's a great Dhamma teacher. And the whole time my mind is behind the wheel of that Ferrari that I'm getting tomorrow. I've, been, I've sat in rooms with Dhamma teachers that were just like that. With the whole room thinking this is an incredible teaching. And I knew the Dhamma teacher was blasted out of their mind and they weren't present. And I did that a few times. Many of these teachers that were able to teach while they're blasted out of their mind took legendary status within the modern Buddhist community, as isn't it remarkable? They can be blasted out of their mind and still teach the Dhamma. That's awful, isn't it? Isn't it? 
to me would be disgrace. It'd be disgraceful for me to not forget the fact that I'm a recovered alcoholic and I don't drink to come here and have a drink before class. It's disgraceful, isn't it? Why? Not because drinking is disgraceful, because it, it, it's such an insult to people that come here and want to learn the Dhamma. And our teachers understand that. There's a grave but joyful responsibility once we start gaining an understanding, whether we become teachers or not. As we start gaining an understanding of what we're doing for ourselves, we gain an understanding of what we truly can do for all humanity, which is what every human being should want to do, though we won't, is to wake up. Because you've heard me say it over and over again, the most loving thing I can do for myself and all other sentient beings is to take to the Dhamma and awaken. Because then I know at least, at the very least, I'm not contributing to the world's suffering. And that's all I can ever know. This follower of the Noble Eightfold Path, from fully developing the four levels of jhana, knows an exquisite peace. That's enough, isn't it? Fabrications have ended, grasping too. <clears throat> this passion and unbinding are now established. It is as if an archer or their apprentice were to practice on a particular target. With continued practice, they would be able to shoot quickly for long distances, piercing many targets. In the same manner, they reach the cessation of the defilements. If not then, if not then through continued joyful right effort and cessation of the five lower fetters of self-identification, grasping at rituals and practices, much of modern Buddha, much, much of religion is that way. And again, I'm not knock, knocking religion or spirituality. I'm just pointing out the importance that the Buddha taught on recognizing and abandoning those that types of thinking and practicing. Uh, doubt and uncertainty are to be abandoned. One of the, the major schools of Buddhism practices and, and insists on cultivating doubt, where the Buddhists recognize and abandon it. Sensual craving is to be abandoned and deluded thinking. They are these those that do that are released. They are unbound from views ignorant of four noble truths. The Buddha continues, I tell you, friends, that the ending of the defilements of greed, aversion, and deluding, deluded thinking depends on fully developing the four levels of jhana and overcoming the desire for establishment in these these fabricated dimensions. The follower of the Noble Eightfold Path, having abandoned abandoned self-identification with form, having abandoned aversion, having abandoned self-reference, now here and now there, they enter and remain in the perception of the infinitude of space. Now the Buddha is not saying this is a good thing. He's just saying you're passing through these fabricated existences, so you'll recognize them as fabricated. There's no specialness to them. They're simply to be recognized as speculative, magical, mystical, and put aside. Even here, in this magical, speculative space, even here, they understand that any phenomena connected to five clinging aggregates, form, feeling, perceptions, fabrications, consciousness, why do we know that that thought is connected to the five clinging aggregates? Because it's a fabrication. And it's a fabrication that's rooted in the consciousness that are part of that human being who's having the personal experience of suffering described as five clinging aggregates. Is everybody following me with that little bit? Courtney, you got it? This isn't too confusing? Good, thank you. Let me just uh, restate that. They understand that any phenomena connected to five clinging aggregates, form, feeling, perceptions, fabrications, consciousness, is impermanent, stressful, a disease, painful, and affliction, and as such, anatta. It's not self. It has nothing to do with being a human being. They disregard these phenomena. They disregard it. They don't analyze it. 
They don't pick it apart. They don't try to find blame for where their conditioning came from. They simply disregard it. Remember the, the, uh, the, the sutta where Saraputta was saying, I recognize these defilements as they arose, and I abandon them one by one, deepen his concentration. They disregard these phenomena and incline their mind to the cessation of ignorance. Nothing remains to provoke the birth of suffering. No ignorance remains. This follower of the Noble Eightfold Path, from fully developing the four levels of jhana, knows an exquisite peace. Fabrications ended, grasping too. This passion and unbinding are established. Friends, the cessation of the defilements depends on recognizing and abandoning the five clinging aggregates. The five fetters, excuse me, and overcoming the desire for establishment in the dimension of the infinitude of space. Let me just say this another way. And overcoming the desire for the establishment in any speculative or magical realm. Thus, this is a profound understanding, unsurpassed in overcoming the five clinging aggregates. That line is, the Buddha is saying, the problem of the five clinging aggregates, the problem of ignorance, is overcome directly through jhana practice, which allows for refined mindfulness of the Eightfold Path. He says that three or four times in the sutta. Thus, this is a profound understanding, unsurpassed, and overcoming the five clinging aggregates. Those followers of the Noble Eightfold Path who have attained this understanding and emerge from, from dependence, emerge from dependence on ignorance, skillful meditators all, with rightly, I'm sorry, I got to read it again. Read it Those followers of the noble eightfold path who have attained this understanding and emerge from dependence on ignorance, skillful meditators all, will rightly explain this to others. It's such a powerful line that he's giving to the. He's, he, what he's saying to the people is, if you really care about what I just said, if you really care about others, if you do this, you'll be able to rightly explain it to others. If you really care. And it's interesting that the Buddha ends the sutta at the end of the sutta. He ends the sutta with kind of that admonishment, isn't it? That there's this to do once you get the Dhamma, the Dhamma, to be able to teach it to others. So that's today's class. Let's go, um, we'll go online first. Uh, and let's start with Mary. Mary, good morning. How are you? And please, uh, I, I know it might be a little annoying, but please speak as loudly as you're comfortable. Hi, John. Can you hear me? <laughs> yes! <laughs> okay. Um, really good, Sutta. You know, I was thinking like the Four Noble Truths uh, and the Eightfold Path is like our GPS, and that needs to be our magnet for um, being ardent, alert, and aware, and abandoning the things that take us away from clear knowing and understanding of the Four Noble Truths. But the phenomenal world that we bring with us as we come into the practice and as we, you know, even when we've been with the practice for a few years, um, is a magnet of another kind, you know, yeah. is a draw, is an attraction that takes us in different directions. And it's the, you know, uh, maybe our superpower is to uncouple that yeah. magnetic pull to some of these other things like evaluation or concerning ourselves about things that feel personal or, you know, insert the myriad of other things that any one of us is, um, you know, experiencing or processing in their own mind this morning. And it's breaking that 
old magnetic pole to make room for the pole of the eightfold path because whenever your head gets stuck in a rabbit hole, it's it's pulling it out and the simplicity and, and it's true, sometimes it doesn't feel like enough, you know, yeah. but it's the simplicity of the Four Noble Truths, understanding, abandoning, that's a critical part of understanding all of this is abandoning and lightening your burden as opposed to a magnetic pole that just keeps adding to your burden till you you know, till you feel justified that you just can't go on because you have so much going on. And it's really abandoning all those thought processes and um, uh, is simpler, you know, said than done, but it's the ardent effort every day and the practice and the concentration that brings you back. That's your, that's your new superpower yep. is to come back to the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path and abandon those things that are distracting you and taking you off the path. Wow. Well said, Mir. I like that. That the superpower reference. <laughs> I might fall into eye making for that though, but be careful. So. Thank you, Mary. <laughs> Hello, Mark. How's your superpowers? Uh, yeah, still still developing. <laughs> <laughs> All good. Um, yeah, I don't, not a lot to say on that one. I think um, for a few weeks that that just the two words like self-referential have come up kind of continuously really because um, it's the difference when you think things are happening to you and you interpret it really personally but it's just stuff happening yeah. um, and trying to separate from that continuously um, it doesn't make you doubt yourself but it makes you go <clears throat> what I think is really happening probably isn't what's really happening. It's, it's a very strange thing, trying to practice it at least. Yeah. It, it's such an unfamiliar uh, mental state that it, it, you can almost feel like you're losing your equi equilibrium. Yeah, that's the right word. Why, when you're entering, going from um, a mind-rooted in wrong view to a mind-rooted in right view, there, there can be a transition there that feels pretty uncomfortable. Um, I would suggest that uh, if you haven't already, or maybe just reread everyone. Just read the Bahia Sutta. It's linked right on the, the home page, and it's also linked in the email. It's a very short sutta where the Buddha um, teaches the Dhamma very briefly, and he synopsizes it by basically teaching Bahia to understand that there's there's no you here. Don't personalize anything, but it really gets to the point. Yeah. Thanks for joining, Mark. We'll see you soon. Thanks, so. Good morning, Brian. Do you mean Adam? Good morning, Adam. <laughs> <laughs> What's that? I didn't hear that. <laughs> Thank you very much, John. Uh, noble sounds for me this morning. I'm glad Bye, you joined everybody. us. Yeah, and, but yeah, any please, nobody has to talk if you feel like staying quiet, like Adam just did, or like Brian just did. Just do so. Hello, Mateo. Hi, everybody. Um, yeah, in this sutra and your example, I, I today I can really see all my mistakes when I go through Good. Buddhism. You know, it's like uh, get along, go in some places because they're just Buddhists, but you don't believe anything what they say, but just because you like the people, you stay around. Right. And, you know, it, it took me a while to, to, 
to left that kind of world just because I was thinking, oh, I need to, uh, I, I need to read more. I need to like hang out with these people to feel enlightened, and then I feel like more like uh, uh, suffering more and frustrated. And then I, I realized that I create, I create a big paradox that I was thinking, oh, in order to be enlightened, I'm suffering. What's going on with that? And it, it took me a while to to realize that and left and. I can see all these, all your example today and in this sutra. Yeah, thank you, Matteo. I mean, it was just like that for me too. I, and you know, on one hand, I'm having a, a wonderful time. I, I used to go up to uh, a few different places, but almost every weekend I was at one, or during a week I was at some a, a local uh, center. But I, the point is that I, had, I made great friends, and I, you know, the people were wonderful. We it was it was a big party getting together, but that's all it was. I remember. It was about a two-hour, roughly over two-hour drive back from one of these places. And the whole time back, I'm thinking, why am I doing this? And yet, you know, next week I'd be back up there thinking, basically all these people can't be wrong. And that, that teacher, he's such a wonderful person, they can't be wrong. But they were, but my, my judgment about it was clouded because of my craving for and clinging. That I already put some time into That's the other thing. You put... Whenever you put a lot of time into anything called the vested interest, you have a hard time letting go of it, don't you? You have to admit that kind of this was a waste of time. But I had to do that with, in really in relating to the, to the, the, the suit to where we abandoned fabrications one after another, I literally had to do that. I remember doing, you know, thinking, well, this is a practice that I thought was, that I did for years. There's another one. No good. And it, and it was literally that way, directly, directly making that, that point. I don't do this anymore. Karen, it's good to see you. Are you? Would you like to say hello, or would you like to practice noble silence, as our friend Adam Bryan? I would like to say hello and practice noble silence. <laughs> good to see you, Thank Karen. You. Thank you. Thank you. Julia, how are you this morning? Very good, John. Thank you. Um, there's one thing. One, there's a couple. There's one word that I really love. Is when he says exquisite peace. Mm-hmm. That you experience all the levels of jhana. It's exquisite peace. I think the reason why the Buddha is um, Speaking about this is because of, you know, in life it's it's easy to see that we would be clinging, craving, walking around, you know, and attaching ourselves to all these things. But yeah. we're not we're not we don't expect that in jhana meditation. We think, oh, I'm secluded, I'm in peace. But he's showing us here that even here in this in seclusion, in this peaceful moment, we have to be still vigilant because our mind will still cling to these other states. Yeah. And um, in the higher, especially for the monks who are practicing for a long time, these higher states of jhana that they actually experience, there is an, ex- an expansion and, and a feeling of, of unity with everything. Yeah. And they can actually desire to be there and stay there and, and not leave <coughs> that place. And, and Buddha is saying, well, that, even that is self-referential. And even that is continuing this little dust speck. Will you will not you will if you don't release it, you will not be able to become liberated. And so, be careful in jhana. Be vigilant in jhana, even because the the mind tends to cling, and and, yeah. and these states are very irresistible. Once you get there, they're very irresistible, and the mind still clings to those states. So, even here, release. You know, that's what I that's what I feel because even you can see he says. The purpose of concentration is to not to unite the mind and the body, moment by moment, free of any self-referential views. Yeah. That's it. Be careful. That's. I think that's what he's kind of. That's yeah. what he's kind of trying to trying to give us. 
this this warning. Yeah. Because it's very very um, the mind is tricky. That's all I can say. No, <laughs> the it, mind, you, the you, mind is tricky. You described that beautifully. You know, the uh, it takes a little bit of dharma practice to develop what I'm about to say, but in any situation, do you see yourself in it? And if you are, and it, it can be very subtle, like like a, a practice that um, might seem innocuous. Um, just as an example, I'm not putting the practice down because a lot of people do it, and maybe, it, I'm not saying maybe it works for them, it didn't work for me. Um, there's one practice, the practice that I actually took, took my vows in and then disavowed, uh, teaches that you must do 108,000 vows. After you do 108,000 vows, then we can begin your formal Dharma practice, not Dharma practice. And I actually started that because I took vows and I started the 108,000 vows and I did about three and that's when I disavowed my vows. Because, uh, I mean, I was actually doing this and I, I, don't, I shouldn't be so so. I'm not knocking people to do it because they're sincere. Um, my root guru who... who uh, Initiated me was still, I still think, one of the most wonderful people I've ever met. So I, I'm not, I sound like I'm um, knocking them. I'm really not. I have great fondness. But for me, I see the absurdity in me, and I guess that's why I'm making, making fun at her, being silly. It, it was absurd for me to do those things, even though I didn't know any better. You know, but I was, it was because of, I thought that I needed to be somehow a better person or a different person than I was. It's a motivation for any of this stuff, isn't it? You know, for... You could call it the whole self-help movement was to become something other than what we were. There was a huge self-help movement during the Buddhist time too. Again, it was called religion and spirituality. Everybody's trying to help themselves. You know, some were doing severe ascetic practices, some were doing other things. And the Buddha said, "No, this is nonsense. If you engage in self-help, we might talk about this at breakfast this morning." If you have it, if if you feel like you need to engage in self-help, it's because there's a part of you that is, that is rooted in self-loathing, isn't there? There has to be. If you think you have to do something to fix something that's broke, you're rooted in self-loathing. Where did it come from? Let it go. Let that thought go. Why is it here? Let it go. Is it here? Do you self-loathe? Yeah. Guess what? Let it go. Just another thought. It's conditioned. It takes a long time. For some people, but that's the, that's the whole issue, isn't it? Because that's rooted in three defilements. And how do we get out of the three defilements? What's the only way that, that an awakened human being said? What's the technique we have to develop if we're going to get rid of greed, aversion, and deluded thinking? John, practice. Michael, how are you this morning? I'm good, John. I'm going to take notes. Silence. Oh, I'm going to do it. Okay. Thank you. Good morning, Tommy. Good morning, John. You're on fire today, man. Uh oh. Uh, Hallelujah! Hallelujah! <laughs> Lord save us. Uh, <clears throat> of course, I, I relate to a lot of what you're saying in relationship to recovery, and um, so you hit, you said a lot of things I needed to hear today. Yeah. Very grateful for that. And otherwise, I just try to absorb it and try to you yeah. know, piece it together and then unpiece it together. You do a lot of piecing and unpiecing. Yeah. So I'm yeah, just happy to be here and thank you for teaching. Yeah, it's always good to see you, Tom. Uh, Becky? Good morning. <clears throat> Just want to say, as usual, that I'm very happy to be here. And what jumped out at me from this sutta was the line, those who have emerged 
from dependence, from dependence on ignorance. I think that that is so profound because of the use of the word dependence. And that's why to abandon ignorance is, is so difficult and takes the amount of concentration that we are trying to develop through jhana because we are dependent on it. Our minds, our minds just go there. They just do that. <coughs> and and to even to even just recognize when we're doing it is yeah. is remarkable that we can we can actually be taught to do that by someone and because it's there all the time. It's just yeah, so that really um, that really helped and really made me realize what what a journey we're on. Doug, yeah. it, it, it's wonderful that you recognize that how important that one line is because if we're if we're unsettled at all, I'm going to use the word miserable, but if we're unsettled at all in our life, it's because of that because we That's want it right. to be. Yeah, we're, we're we're and we're simply we're simply not concentrated. And we're not concentrated because of desire. And then when you start putting putting all the pieces together, and you've heard me say this, Michael always argues this. Point. It's simple, isn't it? But it is. That's not to say that it's easy. But it is simple. And it really boils down boils down to simply seeing what's occurring clearly without any fabrication. Good morning, David. Think about the simple act of making the decision to sit in seclusion of sensuality. Because that sensuality attached to the delusion. And really this practice is simply to understand that these senses that we have are bumping into things and they're not personal. And that's, to Mary's point, the superpower. Mm -hmm. yeah. That's all that Sariputta taught and that's all that Buddha's teaching is simply that these are things that are you're making contact with and they're not personal. Thank you, David. That, that really, the more I hear it, superpower really is the right word, I think, for that. And I, I, that might be what I was referring to on our last retreat as uh, hope that uh, Siddhartha had that drove him, and I think that really drives us all as human beings. Thank you. Ron, got any WD-40? <laughs> good morning, Jen. Hi, John. Hi, everybody. It's good to see you. Good morning. Good morning. Um, I'm going to take noble silence today. I'm great. Enjoy this. Thank you, Jen. Give me one second. Volume four. Courtney, how are you? Welcome to our Sangha. Hi, thank you. Um, I would just like to take a bow noble sign. I'm glad you joined us today. I, on the, Tommy would probably tell you, but the, on the website becoming-buddha.com, mm -hmm. there's, uh, there's these guided meditations, recordings of that, and 
just a bunch of there's 300 suttas and 600 recordings so fantastic there's a lot of info if you're if you're interested and i hope you come back and join us and if you have any questions just send me an email through the website so thank you glad you joined us hello ron hello um <clears throat> good to be back on this beautiful day um yeah another one of the suttas where the buddha basically says do your practice mm-hmm. and Watch out for the roadside attractions. <laughs> because they'll, you know, they're very, uh, they're very interesting. Yeah. But <clears throat> they're just roadside attractions. Yeah. Roadside can, distractions. Yeah, distractions. And you can pass them by. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's... It's a nice... And, and, and as you said, it is, it is simple. It's not easy. It's certainly not easy. But it is simple. Um, which is one of the things I really, really appreciate about about the Dharma is that it's it it has this simplicity to it and coherence that um, you just cannot break it. And uh, once you see it, you know what it is. Yeah. No, no and, mystery. And, and the ease no that magic. comes with that—that that you don't have to strain yourself. Yeah to get this grand thing kind of understood. As you move into it, it becomes clearer and clearer and it, and it falls together. It's, uh, it's stress-free. Yeah. By design, stress-free by design. I like that, I think I'll put it on the website. Stress-free mm-hmm. by design. Um, all right, uh, we're, all, we're going to breakfast. Where are we going? Well, <clears throat> let's try. Actually, what I can do is, is uh, I'll uh, I'll run over I'll run my truck over to um, um, the Love and Oven and see if there's if it's mobbed or not. All right, and then and we'll either go there or bridge. And then if that doesn't help, then we have the bridge. Sounds good. And you're all you can all join us if you want. No, I think you're not going to make it. Uh, and remember Tuesday night if you can join us for our dinner with Larry. Uh, I think at Bamboo House. But just let me know. All right, we'll finish with Meta as we always do. And these are the words, the Buddha's words on metta from the Karaniya Metta Sutta. Just take a moment to become mindful of your in-breath and your out-breath and let that mindfulness of your breath reunite your mind and your body. These are the Buddha's words. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. Wishing in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life, her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. Radiating kindness over the entire world, 
spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. Thank you all for a wonderful class this morning. Peace. Thank you, John. Thank you. Thank you. See you all. Thank you, John. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye, Thank Karen. you. Bye, everyone. I might Bye. see you tomorrow, Karen. Bye. Bye, Karen. Bye, Karen. Bye, Karen. See you. No, I'm going to come on Tuesday. Good. I'm letting you know. This is my RSVP. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for listening. I rely on donations to support the continued restoration, preservation, and presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma. If you find benefit here, please consider a donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace.